content warning. This episode contains descriptions and discussions of gender violence, including physical abuse, sexual abuse and assault, and murder. Yo quiero que piensen en mí como la mujer que tomó prestada la valentía de pasadas y presentes guerreras. Ese escalón diario que me inspira a creer que donde hay ovarios, hay más que fuerza para seguir adelante. Mujer trabajadora, jamás vencida. Luz infinita que ilumina ese ocaso que pinta la flor más incolora. Yo soy parte de ese ejército, donde solo hay cabida para armas valerosas, pero con lápiz labial rojo. Poema escrito por Zuliani Calderón Nieves. The poem that Marianne just read is from a collection of poems by Suliani Calderon Nieves, which was compiled and published posthumously by her family. An English translation will be available in the show notes, and selected excerpts from the book are available online as well. Suliani was murdered by her ex in 2018, and she is one of the many women who experienced the horrors of gender-based violence in Puerto Rico. Today, we start the episode to honor her and everyone who this issue touches. It is difficult, it is harrowing, but it is necessary to learn more about how the climate in Puerto Rico has reached this fever pitch, how we can re-examine our own assumptions about gender and its role in society, and to make sure to remind ourselves that these things did happen to these women, but they are not what happened to them. They are human beings and they deserve respect. Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. I'm so happy to welcome back Marianne Tissot as my co-host in our ongoing, if slow-going, series on the histories and futures of Puerto Rico. Last episode, we focused on self-determination, tracing the evolution of the independence movement in PR, and the impact of colonialism and violence, both natural and institutional, that was inflicted on the island. This episode, we're taking a closer look at another strain of violence, one that often takes place behind closed doors, but one that has been bursting forth to make headlines over the past year, gender-based domestic and intimate partner violence. In PR, it's most often referred to as femicidio, femicide. Keep listening to hear more about the cultural and historical background behind femicide, and to hear more from award-winning Boricua journalist Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez. Today, as we mentioned, we're going to be talking about the epidemic of femicide on the island of Puerto Rico, and we have a wonderful journalist, Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez, who's going to come on and speak to us. But before we get to that, we just wanted to give a little bit of background for our audience about how we came to this level of violence against women and sort of where that really came from. On January 24th, 2021, the governor of Puerto Rico, Pedro Pierluisi, declared a state of emergency for gender-based violence on the island that would not expire until June of 2022. In an official statement, Pierluisi wrote, Gender violence is a social evil based on ignorance and attitudes that cannot have space or tolerance in the Puerto Rico that we aspire to. For too long, vulnerable victims have suffered the consequences of systematic machismo, inequity, discrimination, lack of education, lack of guidance, and above all, lack of action. It is my duty and my commitment as governor to establish a stop to gender violence, and for these purposes, I have declared a state of emergency. As part of this order, Pierluisi established the Committee for the Prevention, Support, Rescue, and Education of Gender Violence, which is called PARE, chaired by Carmen González Magas, who completed her doctoral thesis on gender violence. 
The government also established mechanisms for the now three organizations dedicated to addressing gender-based violence to request additional funding and resources, and an app that would allow victims to ask for help without their abuser being able to see the messages. Another element that we began to address in our last episode also plays a chilling role in the spike in femicides across the island. NPR's Adrian Florido spoke on an episode of All Things Considered following the state of emergencies declaration, saying, The order is something that activists and feminist groups have been demanding for almost three years, ever since they noticed an increase in domestic violence and women murdered by their intimate partners in the months after Hurricane Maria. Just before the end of last year, the Gender Equity Observatory of Puerto Rico conducted a study partially because of the continued public emphasis that the overall murder rate on the island had declined during the pandemic. As Dr. Deborah Upegi Hernandez, an analyst at the observatory, pointed out, despite the fact that the police and the press continue to focus on the fact that the total number of murders in this pandemic year has been lower than in 2019, this has not been the case for women, girls, and trans people in Puerto Rico. The analysis we have made of the press reports in 2020 shows an increase of 62% in the total number of femicides when comparing these figures with those of last year. Everyone both on the island and among the diaspora was following the cases of two women who were murdered by their partners, Andrea Ruiz and Keishla Rodriguez-Hortiz. The murder of Andrea Ruiz became a symbol of the institutional failures that cost women their lives. Andrea, a 35-year-old, asked the judge in March for a restraining order against her ex-boyfriend. She was told by the judge that both sides needed to be heard before proceeding. She therefore went to the police, who investigated and sent a case to a prosecutor, who then approved it to go to a judge. Everyone was present at court, Andrea, her ex, and her ex's attorney, everyone except the prosecutor. She therefore was left to defend herself in front of the judge, who reported seeing no cause for arrest. In a leaked audio, she can be heard describing the abuse she experienced before and after they were dating. Shortly after, on April 28th, her body was found on the side of a road. Her ex-boyfriend was charged with first-degree murder. On April 29, while Puerto Ricans were still reeling from this horrific news, Keishla Rodriguez-Ortiz was murdered. This time, the story reached even more people, since the primary suspect is renowned boxer Félix Berdejo. Keishla was reportedly killed after she told Berdejo, whom she had known all her life, that she was pregnant with his child. The woman whose poem that we read at the beginning of this episode, Suliani Calderon-Nieves, faced a sort of similar procedural block that Andrea did too. She had a protective order against her ex on the basis of harassment and stalking, which Andrea Gonzalez-Ramirez goes into in her report. And that order expired in December of 2017, which was three months after Hurricane Maria hit the island. So not only, as you're mentioning, is is the judiciary really not set up in a way to be sensitive and empathetic to victims of gender-based violence, but also we have to sort of take into account that the environment following Hurricane Maria exacerbated that issue. So when Suliani showed up to the hearing to restore this protective order, she showed up without a lawyer, which is the same thing that happened to Andrea. And because she thought it wouldn't really be a big deal to sort of get that order reinstated, because, you know, there was obviously precedent that allowed it to be instated in the first place, she seemed quote-unquote unprepared, which I think you could make the same case that that's what the judge thought with Andrea, too. The renewal was denied, and, and there was a similar leaked audio of her calling her brother after that hearing. Governor Pierluisi declaring a state of emergency for women was imperative for obtaining funding and resources needed to fight against gender-based violence. 
However, the government has shown the femicide crisis is not on their list of top priorities. Also, as Andrea Ruiz's case unfortunately demonstrates, courts in Puerto Rico have denied about 70% of restraining orders requested in the late months of 2020 and early 2021. This highlights a systemic judicial issue that fails to trust and therefore protect women on the island. In just a moment, we'll hear from journalist Andrea Gonzalez-Ramirez about her reporting on this issue and the factors that have brought the epidemic of gender violence to this level on the island. Today, we are so excited to welcome Andrea Gonzalez-Ramirez, an award-winning journalist who is currently a senior writer for The Cut and New York Magazine and a Knight Wallace Reporting Fellow. You can find her work in Refinery29 and GEN, and she is also the founder of the Latinas in Journalism Mentorship Program. In 2020, she published a report documenting a year's worth of research into gender-based violence in Puerto Rico and detailed the sharp spike in domestic violence and murder in the aftermath of 2018's Hurricane Maria. In response to the rising crisis of gender violence on the island during COVID-19, Andrea wrote an incredibly moving piece about how this epidemic is rocking the island and reverberating across the world. So welcome, Andrea. We're so happy to have you today. The fact that you guys are doing this series is super, um, I think it's great. So thank you so much for thinking of me. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you became drawn to this particular topic. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, so as you said, my name is Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez. Um, originally from Puerto Rico, and I've been based stateside for about seven years now. Um, so the reason I started reporting on this was because I have a personal connection to the issue. Um, I this would not come as a surprise to many Puerto Ricans, but usually we know survivors, right? Like most people in the island. No one loves people who are survivors of gender violence. And there's members of my family that have undergone this. Um, so after Hurricane Maria happened, and I started seeing reports from advocates that, you know, there were there was an increase in not only the cases of domestic violence, but also the lethality of them. I started reporting more on this issue. And what I discovered was that after the storm, Basically, the number of murders doubled and the intimate partner murder rate was doubled that of the entire U.S. And there were a lot of advocates who were trying to fight on this front and, and get the government to do something. Marianne and I were talking about this the other day, like it could really be anyone. It can happen to anyone. One of the things in your article that I thought was really helpful was when you described sort of this issue of gender violence as you said, a problem of cultural baggage historically misguided government priorities and a lack of resources on an island that's pretty much broke. We thought that was sort of a good way to break down some of the questions we had. Yeah, so starting from the governmental and historical precedent, first we wanted to ask you about the post-Hurricane Maria climate in 2018 leading up to the state of emergency. So what does a state of emergency mean for this issue and how much of it is actually like guaranteed to be achieved in practice? So uh, in 2018, this was right after the storm. And as I said, like the, the number of intimate partner murders like doubled that year. And this is something that it's not unique to Puerto Rico. Um, there's research out there that shows that after natural disasters, the, the violence against women 
um, especially in their homes and in their intimate relationships. Like usually, like there's an optic for months and months and months. People do not have access to basic things like electricity and clean water. Um, so we saw this this uptick, and in November of 2018, there was this Planton Feminista, which was basically a protest organized by Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, like a feminist organization in the island. And they just camped in front of the governor's mansion for three days. And what they were asking for was like, you need to declare a state of emergency. And this was Governor Ricardo Rosselló, who was eventually ousted a few months later. And he did not do anything. Um, and for the next year, like entirety of 2019, and 2020. Following Rosario's ouster, Governor Wanda Vasquez tried to implement what she called a national alert, which was like one level lower than the state of emergency. And that national alert, uh, they were working on a draft for about a year <laughs> and nothing was really done during her tenure. So when Perluisi was then elected in November 2020, one of the first things he did when he came into office in January was declare the state of emergency. And what this does in practice is release funds for different initiatives. He also organized this committee called Comité Pare, Pare as in stop, stop to the violence, basically, which gets together like the heads of government agencies, advocates, and, and people from different sectors that are getting together to look at the protocols that the government has right now and like revise them, right? Like one of the main issues that the island has had historically is that statistics are not collected adequately. So uh, you had the courts collecting one information, police collecting another information, the women's advocate office collecting something different. So no one really knows the scope of the problem. And one thing that the committee says they're doing is getting together to like kind of like centralize that. Um, I did an interview with the liaison between the committee and the governor, Ileana Espadas, who is a, a prosecutor not that long ago. And for example, she said that one thing that they're working on right now is centralizing the way that protective orders are processed. So right now, like a protective order is like a civil tool that doesn't cross into like criminal matter unless a protective order is broken. So a lot of times police are not sure where a victim has a protective order or not, or if they do, it's hard to like, it's it, one of the main problems that happens in the islands that there's no connections between the agencies, right? And that's why things fall through the cracks. The government cannot really call the shots over its own finances because the island it's broke, as I said in the piece, right? Like Puerto is about $73 billion in debt. And because of that, in 2016, the then Obama administration and the Republican Congress introduced this legislation called PROMESA, which created an unelected fiscal board that manages all of the island's finances. So something that happened in May when these two murders of Andrea and Keishla robbed the entire island was that we discovered that La Junta, the, the board, was not going to give you know, the money that the governor was requesting. And after some pressure, they did release those funds. But, you know, that's I think that's the main conflict that's happening right now, is that even if the government wants to do stuff, 
because of all this other baggage is it's very hard for for things to be accomplished expeditiously right you know Puerto Rico passed the equivalent of the Violence Against Women Act in 1989 like full five years before the federal government passed a similar legislation criminalizing domestic violence and and criminalizing sexual assault, basically, a, a large scale. So we've known of this problem for more than three decades. Like the Ley 54, which is the Act 54, this was passed three years before I was born. And yet we're still dealing with a lot of the same issues today. Yeah, that's actually great because we wanted to ask you about pre-2018, sort of what legislation was in effect and things like that, because I think oftentimes... 2018, understandably, is cited as sort of this really major point for a spike in domestic violence and gender-based violence. But as you mentioned, 1989, there was the Domestic Abuse Prevention Intervention Act, and then the U.S. Department of Justice sued the Puerto Rico Police Department in 2012, citing negligence specifically about this issue. What would you say is the reason that this is coming to light more now and seen more as a pressing issue. Yeah, so I think that, you know, in 1989, we have Ley 54, and then in 2001, the Women's Advocate Office is, it's like, enacted. And this is, like, an independent agency that's supposed to deal with gender issues in the island. Um, but I, I think that in 2012, yes, the, the U.S. Department of Justice sued the Puerto Rico Police Department for a ton of issues, including that they were not handling domestic violence cases and sexual violence cases adequately. But I, I think that there was a breaking point because of Maria. And that's the difference from before, right? Like, I think that for the longest time, violence against women was very normalized and accepted in Puerto Rico. Like, this is like a, still today, it's like a very taboo issue. I remember growing up and knowing like, now that's an adult, I realized that some of like my family members were abused, but at that point, it was just a thing that in my childhood, you just talked in whispers. And, and, and it was something that for a lot of women, it causes a lot of shame. And, and if they did get try to get help, often what would you hear, which is like what some of my family members heard, was like, oh, this is the father of your kids. Are you sure you want to do this? And if you're stuck in like a difficult economic situation, which is a reality for about 45% of Puerto Ricans live below the level of poverty. So if you're stuck in like an unsafe situation like that in a small town, because Puerto Rico has 78 towns and all of them are small towns where everyone knows each other. Like it's very hard to break the cycle of violence, right? But I think then with Hurricane Maria, like I, if you talk with any Puerto Rican, whether they're on the island or the diaspora, like this was a moment that reshifted a lot of things for people. And I think it broke the illusion that it had taken hold over Puerto Rico for a long time as a colony of the United States. Like that's why one of the main reasons that Governor Rosario got ousted because people were angry about that. People were angry about the lack of of help from the federal and local government. They were they were angry that so many people died like needlessly, right? And amid that kind of like political awakening that crossed over partisan lines, I think there was like a renewed sense of like, this is a huge issue and it's unacceptable that on this day and age, we are still seeing so many women be killed by their partners 
and also so many women being killed in like all our circumstances and we're not really doing anything about it so yeah I think that before it was kind of like there was an acceptance of like well this is just how things are and after Hurricane Maria like a, a lot of that acceptance was just it changed a lot of people were like no we we can't we have to stop accepting things as they are yeah that totally makes sense can you walk us through some of the roadblocks that women experience when they try to report abusive partners to the police or like when they try to obtain protective orders or restraining orders so there are different points of entry through which a victim can seek help so if you go to the courts it's more of like a civil matter you can request a protective order and uh you don't need a ton of evidence to request a temporary protective order when you go to the court you'd say i'm in danger and more often than not they're supposed to give you the protective order and then you then come back and that's when your abuser is there and then it's like whether the judge decides whether to grant a permanent protective order or not. The problem is that, you know, judges in Puerto Rico have the same biases as the rest of the society. So a lot of times, you know, they just don't grant these protective orders. Um, there's something that happened in Andrea's case. You know, we, we heard the audio that was leaked to the press in which within a frame of like 12 minutes, a judge decides that she doesn't have enough evidence to seek a protective order, even though she's telling this harrowing, horrible, like, story about being stalked and harassed by the man she used to date. Um, she's talking about this man was uh, creating fake Facebook accounts and basically trying to, basically trying to tell her, like, oh, um, if you don't do what I say, like, I'm going to release these nude pictures of you. He would stalk her at home and show up in front of her home. And she's telling this whole story. And the judge is clearly very annoyed because this hearing is after hours. And, you know, within a few minutes, she decides, like, Andrea doesn't have enough evidence. And eventually, she's killed by her, by her ex-partner. That's, like, a main issue that happens a lot. It's, like, people try to go get protective orders. Um... The courts released a report not that like a, I'm gonna say like a month or so ago, in which they said that only about 34% of protective order requests eventually lead to like a permanent protective order. So about a third of the people who go seek these protective orders actually receive it. It sounds low, but it's not it's not uncommon. That's kind of like the the same rate for other jurisdictions as well. And then the other part of it is like the police is another point of entry. And this is one of the things that is the most complicated. The police has been bleeding personnel for years. Um, I think that there's about like half the cops that there were before. So sometimes what happens is women call 911 and the police never shows or shows up like super late. Another thing is that they don't follow the domestic violence protocol. They're supposed to ask a series of questions, separate the victim from their abuser, arrest the abuser on site, and then take them, process them. And a lot of times this doesn't happen. And then the police itself has a problem with abusers. Um, one thing that I found in my, my investigation is that about 450 police officers were accused of domestic violence between, I want to say, 2015 and 2019. And 
only one of those cases, just one, <laughs> went to trial and ended up in a conviction. Those are the two main points of entry. And then there's the shelters. A lot of women can go to shelters without needing a protective order or anything. The problem is that Puerto Rico has lost, like, I want to say five shelters over the last 10 years. Um, it's gone from 13 to 8. The southern part of the island doesn't have any shelters, which means if there are survivors there who want to go to a shelter for the night or for a few days, they need to drive upwards of an hour. Um, and that's not super accessible for for a lot of women and the shelters have also lost funding from the government because of like the financial crisis as well so this type of things you know it's it's kind of like a perfect storm situation and that's why it's so difficult to to solve the issue because there's so many moving parts and 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 you know there's not like one solution that will magically solve the problem of violence you mentioned Andrea's case, and I believe you also dedicated a lot of one of the articles that you wrote to Suliani Calderon Nieves, who also had her protective order denied. Yeah, so Suliani um, was killed by her ex-husband in May 2018. Um, she was murdered in front of, of her kids, which it's, it's, it has to be like one of the most horrifying stories. I've ever reported. So yeah, she, after she separated from her husband in the summer of 2017, before Maria, she sought a protective order because um, he was stalking her and harassing her. But that was a temporary one. So when she tried to get a permanent one, um, a judge said no. And then about six months later, she was killed. Um, and you know, a lot of victims who do have protective orders too say that they're worthless piece, pieces of paper. Because as I said, like a protective order is a civil matter, but when it's violated, that's when it becomes like a criminal matter, right? It's a felony if you violate a protective order in Puerto Rico. But a lot of times, like the police will not deal with those cases. And in my investigation, I also talked with this, this woman, M who had a protective order against her ex. Um, he, Her ex tried to rape her twice. Basically, what he would do was just drive by her house consistently or send her messages from, like, other people's phone numbers. So it's just, like, it's still harassing her. The police said that, you know, he's technically not violating the protective order because she cannot prove this is him, right? It was, like, a specific type of car a specific color that sounded exactly how she remembered it sounded, right? She knew it was him because no one else in their small town had that car. But because she could not see the driver, the police could say, oh, actually, you don't have evidence of this. So the problem for a lot of people is that, yes, it's, it's an issue that protective orders are not granted as often as they should. But it's also an issue that they're not enforced because then, as I said, like a lot of people just see us like, oh, piece of paper that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think there was a there was a quote that stuck out to me from that same article where you interviewed um I guess it was Ada Alvarez Conde. She said, "The police are not equipped. The law exists, but if the people meant to execute it are not capacitated, have no sensibility and don't see this issue as a priority, nothing will happen." Which I think is like exactly what you're saying. In Andrea's case, is the was the judge who denied 
I guess, the extension or the permanence of that protective order female? Yeah, it was a she. Um, I also know of someone very close to me who one of their loved ones also tried to get a protective order from this judge and this judge denied it, um, even though this person had evidence. Wow. That's interesting, too, because you mentioned Wanda Vasquez, her administration, they sort of declared something a step below a state of emergency, just like on a, I guess, on a personal note, like how, what does that mean to you to have women in the judiciary or in the government respond this way to an issue like this? In many ways, women can be as harsh uh, judging intimate partner violence victims, right? Um, We see this all the time and in the comments of like news stories, like why didn't you leave? That I ne- I would never allow a man to touch me, right? It's it's like a lot of those things are internalized and and they're internalized to an extent as like a I would say even like a survivor tactic, right? Like if you make yourself believe this will not happen to you ever. Um, that this just happens to a certain type of woman and not you are not that certain type of woman. Like, if you make yourself believe that, then, like, you're going to move through a world with a sense of safety that you wouldn't otherwise, right? Because the alternative is just too painful to consider. I do have some sources who are part of the committee. Um, they're, not, they're not government sources. They work in other spaces like feminist organizations and, and shelters. And I, I do trust these people to, to really push the envelope because this is the thing they've been fighting for, for years and years and years and years. And that now that they're in, I I'm a hundred percent sure that they're gonna get keep pushing, um, in a way that you know like often, the government hasn't because they are not the ones on the front lines and they are not the ones who have to deal with survivors every day. Like, because the main problem in Puerto Rico is like committees are created for everything. Like, oh yeah, committee, committee, committee. And then you don't see anything tangible come out of those. My grandmother would say, curita, like they're just band-aids that you put on like an issue, right? But I think the difference that often those committees have been led by people who are inside of government or people who are close to the political parties, they can push as much as they can push because they are not in the inner circle. And they have been pushing from the outside for a long time. How do you uh, reconcile your relationship to Puerto Rico and like love for its culture with the machismo that you cite as being so firmly entrenched? I'm very lucky that me papi is like one of the best men I know, right? And and him and my mom really modeled what a healthy, loving relationship looks like. Growing up, to me, like, having been exposed to that was super formative. So in my immediate, like, pedacito, in my little small, like, piece of, of Puerto Rico, like, I I don't need to to kind of, like, reconcile that, right? Because I don't see it in my immediate family. But then when you zoom out, it's like, it is hard, Um you know, it is frustrating to do this type of work and reporting on this, like, it does, you know, it, it it's heavy. And I don't think enough journalists talk about, like, the almost, like, second-hand trauma that you, you experience, you know, sitting down with survivors and hearing their stories and then 
just carrying that. Um, I, I've spoken a few times since the investigation came out with Suliani's mom, Sonia, and it, it is difficult to hear that, like, her frustration three plus years after her daughter was brutally murdered, and she's like, and I don't see things actually changing, right? And as someone who reports this, I also feel frustrated often. I'm like, uh, I am putting all this information out there. Like so many other people are doing work on this, like from different angles, not, ju- not just journalists um, and, and investing a lot of themselves and pushing this forward. And yet, <laughs> and yet you look at these comments and, and yet you hear these things and yet you see your own colleagues on TV giving a platform to a boxer who got accused of domestic violence and got arrested. And, and they were like, so what will you tell your ex? And it's like, why the hell are you giving a platform to someone who was charged with this, right? Like, why is this acceptable, right? And, and it is like so many other things with Puerto Rico, I think that a lot of people unless you're from the island, unless you have family in the island, the diaspora, like unless you are Puerto Rican, (laughs) it is very hard to disentangle like all these complexities about its politics, about its like culture, about, you know, colonialism and and how that has shaped us. So I don't know (laughs) if I've fully reconciled. I think it's a... It's a give and take thing. I feel like, at least for me, it's like, it's similar to like loving something or in this case, like loving where you're from and your country and having so much pride, especially as like a Boricua, Puerto Rican, but then while still acknowledging the faults that are present and embedded in society and wanting to play an active role to make it a better place. And I think that's what you are doing through your journalism. And I think that's why it's so important, like the work that you're doing. I wanted to ask you where you think the blind spots are for people who come to this issue or cover this issue in your field who are not from Puerto Rico? Like where, what do you think people are missing mm-hmm. if they don't come to it from a local lens? Yeah, I think that, as I said, like there's usually very little interest in the island to begin with. Um, but it's very easy for often like, English language media, like American media, to to look at Puerto Rico in very simplistic terms, right? Is why the conversation around the political status is so flat and and so black and white, and there's no space for nuance. And because it has been pretty much erased from the national conversation, because uh, Americans uh, feel very uncomfortable when you talk about colonialism um, and are very um, often don't want to recognize the way they they perpetrate this, not only in Puerto Rico, but in four other <laughs> colonies as well, right? So I think that it's, it is hard. And, and more often than not, what you see is like parachute reporting where people just drop in for a few days, do their little sound bites, and then they leave and they don't develop like long-lasting relationships with sources on the ground. They they don't really embed themselves in communities to really understand where they're coming from. So I would hope that, you know, there's a couple of us <laughs> in, in, in English language media, like stateside, that are pushing a little bit to get this issue more covered. And I would hope that our colleagues that are not Boricua would just 
look at our work and respect our work and also come to us if they have questions and, and make sure to stop doing the parachuting version of this. I think there's something that in your recent interview with Connie Walker, who's also just like one of my idols in terms of in the podcasting world. Um, <laughs> she's awesome. Um, but she said something, I think, sort of near the end of your interview about feeling like people asked her, like, you know, why do these families open up to you? Why do you think that they come to you so much and are willing to share this? And she said, like, basically, I'm the only one who's asking them. Mm-hmm. And these are things happening in the States, but it's really, I think there's a lot of similarities that exist between the two of them. And just sort of having having the willingness to, like, actually start the conversation, which is what I think you're you're talking about, too, is is a really good place to start. This is something that I feel like the media has been so saturated with this. So if you don't want to comment on it, you don't have to. But I know in that same interview, you mentioned sort of the coverage of the Gabby Petito case and this sort of disparity between the spotlighting stories of white female victims and less so on trans victims or victims of color and just sort of like what it means to amplify this issue in like a mindful way I guess mm-hmm. yeah this is something I, I I thought about a lot when I was doing the investigation because I spent a year reporting that right and I spoke with a ton of families and a ton of survivors that did not make the story um and it was hard <laughs> making those choices uh but the way I, I approach it is like I I remember at every step of the way that Suliani was a real person. She had like two young kids. And uh, after her divorce was finally going back to school to her, her college degree, she was in love again. She loved writing poetry and drinking wine and going to read her poetry at poetry readings, right? So I'm sorry, I get emotional. So to me, that was kind of like the, the emotional anchor of it. Same with M. Like, I spoke so much with M, and and her case was devastating because she was so young when it happened to her. Right? Um, she was just twenty three when we talked, and this was happened to her when she was like nineteen twenty. And I thought of myself at nineteen twenty and how protected and happy I was at that point in my life. Right? And the fact that she had to deal with something like this was unthinkable, but also obvious like of course it's happening to girls that age right so so through it all I kept remembering like she's a person with dreams at in and and someone who oh this is not who she is right this is something that that happened to her and it's a chapter in her life but she's like a full person that deserves like all the care and like empathy in the world um so that to me is like, it has to be the anchor when you're doing this type of reporting, right? Like, I am not interested in in describing how the blood seeped through the carpet or like whatever shitty way some of like my colleagues describe gender violence. Like, that's not the point. The point is like, these are people who are suffering or who suffered and they should be treated with respect because they represent a much larger issue. And for every Suliani and for every M and every Andrea and every Keishla, there's like so many more that we 
do not know are undergoing this type of hell. So we have a responsibility to do right by them and 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 to treat their stories with care. Um, in Gabby's case, like I think that what made me the most uncomfortable was to see this frenzy at dissecting every little detail about her disappearance and like murder without realizing that she was like a 22 year old person again with dreams with hopes like she literally had her entire life ahead of her and instead she was just reduced to like a hashtag that could be used for engagement um so to me like the only way to do this work is to center the people that are affected by this issue center those communities and that doesn't mean giving voice to the voiceless because I feel like that's a very (laughs) there's a lot of issues with that type of perspective it's just allowing the space for people to tell their own stories Um, and if they're not here then allow their loved ones to tell those stories I just want to do the best possible work I can to to make sure that that that's the case I am just just before we finish, I wanted to ask you if you had, if you wanted to share with us any resources, organizations, or people that um, we can look into or that, you know, people who are listening can look into if they want to learn more about the work that is um, being done in Puerto Rico and in the diaspora uh, to combat uh, gender-based violence in the island. Yeah, I would definitely recommend Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, like, the work they do has been very centered on this issue, but they are dealing with other issues that affect um, women and other marginalized genders in the island. I would say Taller Salud. Um, they are an organization that's based in Loiza, and they do a ton of community work that's super important. And again, they're dealing with gender violence, but they're dealing with like a bunch of other issues that affect those communities as well. Um, Coordinadora Paz para la Mujer is a an organization that has been around for like 30 some years and they're one of the leading women's organizations in the island. Um, if you're partial to to Instagram, then Consentimiento is also like a good political education Instagram account um, run by two really young, really amazing um, women. They're all sources, have been sources at some point or another, so I can vouch <laughs> by, for the work that they've done. Um, and they're just people who, I don't know, like they deeply care about making a difference. And if you care about making a difference as well, then you should connect with them. And I am so appreciative and grateful that you guys created this space. Um, very excited to share the episode once it's out. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode of All Alone with Something to Say. All of the resources that Andrea mentioned, as well as a link to Suliani's poem collection, will be in the show notes of this episode. Special thanks to Andrea and Marianne, of course, for making the episode what it is. Today's episode was edited and produced by me, Emma Newberry, and features music by Kenny Knoll. As always, if you've got something to say, you can reach us on Instagram and Twitter at the all alone pod or by email at the all alone pod at gmail.com.